All right, a couple of announcements. Just a reminder to the men that on June 18th, which is a week from this coming Saturday at 7.30 a.m., we'll have our men's prayer breakfast, which is a great time for us to spend uh, learning some things about the Word and also um, talking about some uh, application of the Word. So that will be, we'll be wrapping up our study of how should we then live this this time, and then I've got some other things that I'm trying to work out for the remainder of the summer, all related to the fact that we have a very important election coming up in November, and I want to bring in some uh, local uh, politicians who have insight into various things, and so we can get to know them uh, a little better. So that's uh, what's on hand for the prayer breakfast through through uh, at least through September. You know, I used to have to prepare for November, but with early voting starting about the second week of October, uh, you, have, you can't start wait until August or September to start talking about these things. Also, we'll have an Independence Day dinner following the morning worship service on July 3rd, and so more details will come out. We're also going to have a special event in that Mark Musser, who many of you know, Mark worked, uh, I first met Mark in uh, Kiev. When he was, uh, he and his wife Karen were working with Jim in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then due to various uh, health issues and other things, they came back. He pastored a church in his home uh, community in in uh, Washington State, and then um, he and his wife, his wife works for uh, uh, an international school organization and went back to work for them, and they were in Armenia for about four or five years. Then war broke out between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and um, so they went to uh, from there to uh, Almaty in Kazakhstan, which is they're wrapping things up, packing things up now. They'll be back in uh, about three weeks to Houston. And during this time, he has completed his Ph.D. work, and unfortunately, due to... The fact that uh, he's in Kazakhstan and they had their commencement a couple of weeks ago, he could not properly be cowled. And his uh, pr- primary reader on his doctoral dissertation is Wayne House. So Wayne's going to come in and uh, that Sunday, and at the end conclusion of the morning service, we're going to have a brief graduation and cowling ceremony Nobody should earn a Ph.D. in silence. We should have, uh, this should be celebrated, and um, Mark has uh, quite a, he's, he's a tremendous writer, has a great uh, ministry there. So that's going to be a multitasking celebration on July 3rd, and then Vacation Bible School on July 19th to 21st, and I think we still need a few more volunteers. So that is the summation of our uh, announcements for now. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Uh, Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get into the word this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his guidance on our thinking and understanding this evening. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can be uh, prepared spiritually before we get into the word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have you to come to. You are our ever-present help in time of need. You are our rock. You are our source of stability. You are our fortress, our shield, our high tower. And, Father, we ought never to be worried or concerned, frightened or discouraged, because we know that uh, you always take care of us. We are to cast our cares upon you because you care for us more than any one of us can conceive of. And you take care of us and watch over us. 
and provide for us in ways we cannot even imagine. Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for the leadership in this nation. We pray that you would raise up men and women who have real moral and spiritual courage, who will stand in the gap and not be swayed by the um, various circumstances and events that happen. We live in a world where there is evil, and evil is destructive beyond anything that we can imagine. But yet we live in a world where the vast majority of people deny the reality of evil, deny that man is basically evil, and consequently they are living in a neurotic and psychotic world in their minds, the vast majority, because they are divorced from reality. The only reality comes from understanding your word. So, Father, tonight as we get into your word, we know that it is that which guides and directs us. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in your light that we see light. And we pray that you would open our eyes this evening to the truth of your word as it applies to us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are in Judges, and we have come to that fun little section in Judges 6, 31 to 35, which I looked at last time where Gideon once again tries to wiggle his way out of doing God's will. And this is one, I mentioned this last time, this is one of two passages in the scriptures that are often used and truly abused in uh, teaching people about how to know the will of God. I remember many years ago now, but when I was first out of Seminary, uh, not seminary, from uh, first out of college, university, moved back to Houston, moved into an apartment with a friend of mine and off of Long Point, about 150 yards from where I now live. And at that time, I was teaching school in Channel View. We were experiencing increasing inflation. We were experiencing gas lines. We were experiencing the price of gasoline going up from, I think, by the middle or summer of 74, it had gotten up to about 47, 55 cents. And within the year, it was getting up around $1.20. Now, remember, just a year before that, a year and a half before that, if you can remember, regular, uh, which was leaded at the time, was 30 cents a gallon. And within two years, it went to about $1.20. That's a fourfold increase. And it had a tremendous impact on your budgets because most people, I mean, my take-home check, my first year teaching school was about $575 a month. But my rent in a, paying half the rent in a two-bedroom apartment, the apartment was 180 so my rent was only 90 bucks. And I could live on $50 worth of groceries sumptuously. So that what's happened between those prices and the prices we have today is what is called inflation. And inflation is not just prices going up. Inflation is when the government continues to print money. And the more money they print, the more money in circulation, the more prices go up because the value of the dollar is less because there are fewer dollars. A lot of people don't understand those basic mechanics. And not all price increases are as a result of inflation. Some price increases are as a result of, of, of supply and demand. And when supply is reduced, as it has been in the oil and gas industry, because of certain decisions our president made, then, of course, the price of gas is going to go up, not because of inflation per se, but because he has reduced the supply and it doesn't meet the demand. So things, some things are the same, and some things are different. And I was facing decisions in my life at that time as to what I was going to do next. My mother had always encouraged me. She had been a, had gotten her teacher's certificate. She said, get your teacher's certificate because you always have something to fall back on. And so I got a teaching job. And it wasn't long before I realized I really didn't want to be doing that for the rest of my life. But what was I going to do? And how was the Lord going to lead me and guide me? 
At that time, I lived about 50 yards or less from Spring Branch Community Church, which was on the other side of a large vacant lot, which is now a couple of office buildings. Uh, And um, they had a Thursday night, what they called a college and career Bible class. And the uh, assistant pastor, whose name uh, is David something or other, David, last name started with a K, but he was a decent Bible teacher. And I was uh, mostly listening to tapes because I couldn't make it into Bible class all the time. So I would go over there on Thursday nights, and I think there was as much attraction to the hour-and-a-half-long volleyball games after Bible class as there was to going to Bible class. And um, he was a good Bible teacher. And at the end of my first year in this situation, uh, he uh, resigned and took a church up in the Woodlands area, I believe, up in Humble, somewhere in that area, and I lost track of him. But the point of all this is we then brought in a candidate for assistant pastor, and he taught a lesson on how to know the will of God from Jonah, and it was the most confusing thing that I had ever heard. And I didn't have you know, one per, I had less than a half of 1% of the understanding and knowledge that I have now. But I just, it just didn't make sense. He did not get uh, offered a position at the church. But I also heard during that same period of time two or three other young seminary graduates who were still very wet behind the ears teaching on Uh, using Gideon, using Jonah, using other passages on how to know the will of God, which I felt were just really confusing and subjective. And it wasn't until I I learned a whole lot more going through seminary and studying and becoming a pastor that I began to understand what these issues are. And that is that you have basically, broadly speaking, within the Christian community, two approaches to knowing the will of God in your life. The one view, which is the view that most many people have heard over their course of their Christian life, is a view that I would call a quasi-mystical view. And that is that the way you know God's will is sort of like uh, the the, uh, Easter hymn, He Lives. You ask me how I know He lives, He lives within my heart. That's pure subjectivism and mysticism. That is not accurate. You ask me how I know he lives because the Bible tells me so. And that's the same answer in knowing the will of God. God's not going to give you liver quiver. He's not going to speak to you in your dreams. He's not going to uh, do any of the number of other things that people sometimes say you need to rely on in order to know God's will. God's will, as we're going to see, is what he has revealed in his word. And as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we learn how to think biblically and wisely. You have this section of books in the Old Testament called Wisdom Literature. It starts with Job. It's the poetry sections, Job. A number of psalms are wisdom psalms. Then you have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And wisdom literature is, wisdom in the Bible is not an approach where it says there's two options, the right option and all the others are the wrong option in terms of decision making. There are wise decisions which may cover a spectrum. And there are those that are foolish which cover a wider spectrum. There are some decisions that are wise. Well, let me rephrase that. There are some decisions that are good. They're good decisions. There are other decisions that are better decisions. There are other decisions, Scripture says, are excellent decisions. We'll see this in Philippians 1, that you may approve the excellent. And so you have a spectrum. Not all of our choices as believers are going to be between that which is non-biblical, carnal, fleshly, sinful, and that which is not. We're going to have decisions between that which is good, that which is better, and that which is excellent. And we have to learn to approve the excellent, and that comes from 
learning the Word of God, and it comes from uh, the experience of practicing it and applying the Word of God. That's, that's how we grow. So I'm going to break this down a little bit as we go into this and just how to know the will of God for your life. And so that's our topic, what the Bible teaches about knowing God's will for your life. So we're going to start off with the introduction of six things to know about God's will. This is just introduction, six things that we should know uh, about God's will. And the first one is to understand that we can talk about God's will in various various ways. And so one way that we can talk about God's will is one that we're all familiar with, and that is something happens. Usually it's something bad that happens, or it may be at the time of death, or it may be at the time of war, at the time of inflation. Uh, it may be at a time when an election does not go perhaps the way you want it to. And so we rely on a statement similar to this. The Bible says that everything that happens is God's will. Therefore, we can relax because even though we don't understand it all, we know that a loving God is in control. And that is true. You have to be careful with that, too, because sometimes you're blaming God when you say that. Oh, it's really God's fault. And that happens. Or you can take it in a way that it's fatalistic. But God loves us and he cares about us. And we know Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good. That doesn't say all things are good. And there are some things that happen that are just bad and evil, and we should grieve because they happen. We can't just act like, oh, well, it's all God's will, so that makes it good. No, Romans 8.28 doesn't say that these events are made good. God will produce good out of them. Okay, so second statement that people will make is, well, you're thinking about getting married. You know somebody is going to, that's a believer, and they're going to marry an unbeliever. And so someone will make the statement, it is not God's will for a believer to marry an unbeliever. Right away you know that if you get married, that is not God's will for your life. That's an absolute that's stated in Scripture. And a third statement that we might hear is that somebody is wrestling with a job decision. They're wrestling maybe with a marriage decision. Maybe they're wrestling with whether or not to buy a house, whether or not to buy a car, any number of major life decisions, maybe some smaller decisions. And so they're trying to decide just what God's will is in the matter. Now, the first one we call God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will. That's one category of talking about the will of God. So we have to define that term. What does that mean? We'll define it in just a minute. The second is God's revealed or moral will. There are many passages in Scripture, and we'll survey them, that say it is God's will for you to give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God. Okay, you know, it's, it's in my experience, the people who are wrestling with what is God's will for my life are not people who are concerned with those 10 or 12 passages that specifically state for this is God's will for your life. That's not entering their horizon. That's God's revealed will. or Sometimes it's called God's moral will or God's decreed will. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then the third statement would be, the idea of God's individual will for the believer's life. And I mentioned this last time. In fact, I had dinner with uh, Jim Myers and Ron Minton on Sunday night. And Jim and I had been talking earlier. He said, oh, I heard you the other night, and you said uh, something about someone came up to you, and he says it was somebody in the church because I was standing there and I overheard it. And they said, you know, you just need to live in the center of God's will. And um, we both cringed when who and neither of us remember who it was. So don't worry about being embarrassed. But we both cringed when we heard that, because the Bible never talks about that. You can't. Even, you can't even. It, it would be difficult to read that into any passage of Scripture. So, those are just kind of an overview. 
Second point is that in one sense, God has clearly revealed his will to us. God isn't playing a guessing game. God isn't trying to hide his will like the old shell game where you take three walnut shells and you hide the pea under one and you mix them all up and then say, well, pick the one that has God's will under it. God's not playing games with us like that. He wants us to know his will and to do his will. And he hasn't hidden it, put it in cryptic language, somehow made it abstruse. He's made it very, very clear. So God has revealed his will to us. Third, God's will is communicated differently in different dispensations. So again, we have to be somewhat careful because in the Old Testament dispensations, in the age of the Gentiles before the flood, the dispensations of innocence, the dispensations of, of, um, of human conscience, dispensation of human government, and then you shift to Israel, the age of Israel, with the dispensation of promise or patriarchs and the dispensation of the law. You get up to the period when Christ is on the earth and there's still direct revelation being given to people. Knowing God's will was different. You did not have a completed canon of Scripture. There were prophets in Israel. There were Gentile prophets before Israel. You have in the church, in in the time of Christ, in the time of the uh, Messianic dispensation, when Christ is on the earth, there are prophets on the earth. In, in the early church, there were prophets. So God communicated differently in different dispensations. But once the canon of Scripture closed, God is no longer giving a direct revelation like he has in the past to anyone. That means that if you're gazing at your navel, waiting to feel a little liver quiver, so you'll know whether to choose option A or option B. You're expecting God to reveal himself to you. God is not in the business of direct revelation in this church age like he was in all the other ages. Revelation, the continuation of revelation is, is done. So that makes you, uh, you're, you're ignoring that. You're rejecting God's clear revelation that he is no longer revealing himself in that way. What he wants you to do is take what you've learned in the word and apply it to your life and figure out how to use it. That's, that's, that's wisdom. I remember when I was in ROTC, and this is typical across the board in military, that you have what it's called uh, field training exercises. And at the end of, this, of the semester when we'd been learning about small unit tactics, various things like that, one of the things that they had done was uh, you, we've learned all these principles. We've, we've had various uh, opportunities of practicing uh, different scenarios. And the, the cadre, but, uh, when I was at, at Stephen F. Austin back then, we had huge amounts of undeveloped land behind the ROTC building. And so they would go back in the woods, and they would mark out these six or eight lanes and what would happen is you would have you couldn't have a full strength patrol uh, patrol but you would have five or six guys and you'd be put on one lane and the first guy says okay here's the scenario you're behind enemy lines you've been on a long range reconnaissance patrol for um uh you've been out for two or three weeks and all of a sudden some guy just goes crazy he just loses it and uh, if you understand the purpose of a long-range, of a LERP, a long-range reconnaissance patrol, you're not supposed to make yourself known. You're there to get information, not to engage the enemy. And so you want to be as quiet and as secretive as possible. And this guy just heads off into the woods screaming his head off. What are you as a patrol leader going to do? And so, you know, you may have several different options. There's not just one right option. There may be a lot more wrong options. But the idea was you've been taught these principles, and now you're in this kind of real-life test situation. How are you going to apply the principles that you've learned? And that's how the will of God is a lot of times. God is saying, okay, you've learned a lot of doctrine, and now you're in this situation. 
And how are you going to handle it? What kind of decisions are you going to make? How are you going to... The test isn't what decisions you make. The test is how you make the decision and how you go through the process of uh, learn applying what you have learned. So God is not in the process of telling us what to do every time we turn around in this life. He wants us to take what we've learned, to trust him, to go to him in prayer, to seek wise counsel from mature believers if necessary, to evaluate all of the circumstances uh, related to the situation, and compare and contrast the different options and make the decision based on how can you, where, by, by let's take an example of going to university or college or moving to a new job, is there a church there where I can learn the word and have good biblical fellowship with other believers? Is there opportunities for me to have ministry within the body of Christ along with taking this particular career path? Uh, what are my options? And I'm not saying that, that, but that's part of the things that you should work out. I've had so many people, they go someplace and there's no church, and for every one person that manages to get tapes or get online or something and to survive, there's others who just get lost because there's nothing there for them, and they don't know what to do, and they, they can't make that decision. Uh, they fail that test, and it's harmful to their spiritual life. So, so we have to be able to, to pass these different, different tests. So, um, in this dispensation, for example, in the dispensation of human conscience, there's no temple. There's no central sanctuary where believers were commanded to go worship. So they worship differently. They did other things differently. God communicated differently. When you get into the period of the law, there are specific commands given related to feast days, three feast days a year, where all the males are supposed to go to the temple and to worship, and that um, uh, there they would also learn the word and focus on the word. Specific commands are given related to those feast days. In the dispensation of the church, there's no central sanctuary, there's no temple, it is a totally different scenario, and there's no continuing revelation. So dis understanding dispensations is important, and a vast number of believers not only don't understand dispensations, they've been taught by some screwball pastor that dispensationalism is evil. All right. Num point number four, this is all in terms of introduction of the six things to know about God's will. God's foremost will is for every human being to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, as the Savior who died, on the, died for their sins, and to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. Is everybody saved? No. See, that's God's desired will, but that's not God's sovereign will. So that's the distinction. God permits man to have his own volition and take responsibility for his eternal destiny, whether he will accept or reject God's offer of salvation. But his desire is for all men to be saved. Fifth point, God's second will is for every believer to grow spiritually. God's will for your life is to grow spiritually. God's will for your life is not to become the most successful engineer in known to mankind. God's will for your life is not to be the most uh, brilliant business person. If achieving those things at the expense of your spiritual life happens, then that's not God's will. And there are many people for whom that happens. But there are some who have the capacity. See, some, some of us try to live beyond our capacity. The capacity is the capacity that God gives us. And so because we try to live beyond our capacity, uh, what gets sacrificed is our spiritual life. But 
God's desire is for us to grow spiritually, even if that means you're not as successful as you could be in the eyes of the world around you. Because the priority for the believer is not what happens in this life. It's what happens in terms of relationship with the Lord and in terms of what, how we're being prepared for the future. 1 John 2.17, and that doesn't mean that every Christian is going to be a missionary or a pastor or anything like that or even a Sunday school teacher. It has to do with your spiritual life and utilizing your spiritual gifts to the body of Christ wherever and however that should take place. 1 John 2.17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. See, this world is temporary. A million years from now, we're going to look back and not even remember it. It is going to be like less than a nanosecond. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And we know that that term abide used by John, by Jesus, is a term related to fellowship. And there's increasing intimacy of fellowship even in heaven uh, as a result of what happens in this life. Romans 12.2 is the passage that comes up more and more when we talk about just what is God's will for your life. This is a command. Number one, do not be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the age. Don't let critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, social justice, all of these things which have become normative in American culture and don't think it hasn't. It is normative in American culture, especially if you're under the age of 40. Those values have seeped in. They're part and parcel of the culture of almost every large corporation, every educational institution. There are exceptions, but there, and there's various degrees. But that is always here. And, that, and, and the one thing I keep saying because I don't think very many people hear me this. If you cannot figure out how the world is influencing you, if you don't know what the world believes. We are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. If you're going to be an effective ambassador for the United States and you're going to be sent to some place like Mozambique or Somalia, when nobody would want to go there. When I was, one of the various things we went through when I was in uh, ROTC was, um, and, and one semester we were given the option to pick different countries, or they were assigned to us. I can't remember which. I think they were assigned to us. And we were to do a complete workup and assessment on those diff- different countries. It's preparation for thinking in terms of, you know, what uh, pre- preparation for the U.S. going to war in any part of the world, whatever. And my roommate and I have been friends since we were 12 years old at Parak Church. Poor guy, he got assigned Somalia. We never heard of it. We had to go find and we weren't dumb. We had to go find an atlas to look it up. But the thing is, you have to know what the world's value systems are and have that intelligence so that you know how the enemy is attacking you, maybe through your own culture. And if you're going to go to Somalia as a missionary, you have to understand their history, their culture, their language, their customs, how all of that interconnects and how they will want you to conform to those things. And that's the way the devil's world is. And if we do not understand the icks, acts, and spasms of the devil's world, then we will find the devil's thinking in our thinking. And that's the danger. And the thinking of the world has gone so strange And most Christians are not prepared to think about the world at all, to think in terms of what is a biblical worldview, not just a Judeo-Christian worldview, but let's get more narrow and talk about a biblical worldview. And how do I understand the scriptures and how I am supposed to address them 
in, in this life. This is one, one reason Ken Ham wrote a book called Already Gone that came out about 10 years ago. And his basic thesis was that about 90% of evangelical churches in America so poorly train their, uh, the kids growing up in their churches that within six weeks of them going off to university, they are hostile to Christianity and they have rejected all of the values their parents taught them. And this was backed up by num- numerous surveys. And, and, that that's true. I mean, it wasn't happening to that degree when I was in university, but it's ha- but it was happening because the the pressures of the devil's world are so attractive, and they're so alluring, and they are designed to appeal to our sin nature. He understands our sin natures better than we do. And I was having a text message with a friend today who commented that she's made the comment, I don't know if I'll ever become a mature believer. And I said, yeah, I think that each step of maturity is where another layer of the sin nature gets peeled off, and we see that the next layer is worse than the one that got peeled off. Right? That's because as we grow, we become more aware of the sinfulness of sin. And so we see it more profoundly. So we're not to be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the age of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. Why? That we can demonstrate by our thinking and by our living that the will of God, doing what the Scripture says, applying what the Scripture says, thinking the way God says to think is good, it's acceptable, and it's complete. We don't need anything else. We don't need what the world has to offer. We'll do much better without it. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's our focal point, to grow in the grace and knowledge. That means we have to learn. We have to study. We have to make part of our daily routine, part of our weekly routine, uh, listening to the teaching of God's word, building that, letting the word of God build itself into our lives. Um, if we think an hour a week on Sunday morning will counter the hundreds of our dozens and dozens of hours that the world advertises itself to us, then we are deceiving ourselves. It's hard to think. I had a seminary professor who used to say, it's hard enough to think. It's even harder to think about how we think. And yet, if we're going to grow as believers, we have to think about how we think. Now, thankfully, we have God the Holy Spirit who's helping us But that's the process. We have to grow in knowledge. We have to study. We have to read. We have to think about it. And that's our Christian walk. So the Christian life then, as we see from that passage, is designed to give evidence that God's will is complete, that it's sufficient, that by applying it in our lives, we can have an abundant life, a life that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all of these are the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ. So that's our introduction. God's priority needs to be our priority. His priority is that everyone gets saved, and everyone that's a second, everyone that gets saved grows to spiritual maturity. So when you ask the question, well, what is God's will for my life, It has the answer has to conform to those two things, that God's will for your life is to grow to spiritual maturity. So whatever your choices are in life, they need to funnel you into the direction of that second uh, second principle, which is your, your spiritual growth. Now, there are a number of misconceptions about God's will, and I'll mention some of these as we go along. But the one I mentioned earlier is this misconception of living in the center of God's will. 
This is the idea that somehow um, there is a perfect individual plan. See that third option I talked about, sovereign will of God. I talked about the moral reveal will of God. And the third is the individual word of God. But often this is this is misrepresented in a, a number of harmful ways because it's the idea that, you know, if I'm walking with the Lord, then somehow I'm in that circle. But I'm not really having God's best for my life unless I'm right at the very center of God's will. So when I break this down into a chart, we're going to ask four questions, make four statements rather. First statement is God has a specific will for how and what each believer thinks. Second, God always has a specific operational will for every believer. Third, these are true or false, by the way. Third, God always has a specific geographical will for every believer. And fourth, God always has a specific will for every decision we make in life. Now, the first one is a true statement. God has a specific will for how and what each believer thinks. We're told, think on these things. Don't think about the other things. Don't be conformed to the world. God has a specific plan. Think about some things. Don't think about other things. Second, God always has a specific operational will for each believer. What do I mean by an operational will? That means living your Christian life. That means confessing sin when you sin. That means pray without ceasing. That means uh, all of those commands and prohibitions that we have in the New Testament especially the epistles, those define the Christian life, how you are to live as a Christian, how you are to think as a Christian. So, yes, God has a specific operational will for every believer. That's the general plan of God. Now, the next two statements are statements that if you made it past the second grade, somebody should have taught you about how to take a test. And when you have words like never and always, that it's probably not a true statement. So the third one is God always has a specific geographical will for every believer. That's not true. Sometimes God has a geographical will for you. And my illustration, I pointed this out last time, God had a geographical will for Jonah to go to Nineveh. But before God told Jonah where to to go to Nineveh, he didn't have a specific geographical will for Jonah. He was, doing, he was just living his life. He could live in this town or that town, this village or that village, unless God gave him other direction. But sometimes God has a specific geographical will, and what we're going to see is you can't miss it. You don't have to uh, stargaze or navel gaze or wait for the liver quiver or anything like that. God is going to make sure that you can't miss that geographical will. And what's the illustration? Again, it's Jonah. Jonah said, I don't want your geographical will for my life. And where did Jonah end up? After a whale ride, fish ride, he ended up in Nineveh. By the way, the root of that Assyrian word for Nineveh is a great fish. God has a punt. God likes puns. He took a fish ride to land up in Fish, fish City. So if God wants you someplace, and I've experienced this several times in my life, when I was at, in, in, uh, at the end of college, just about to graduate, as a history major, I had a history professor who took, to, took uh, students to Europe every year, mostly Germany. He'd gotten his um, Ph.D. in 20th century uh, European politics, I took him for courses on World War One, World War Two, totalitarianism, things of that nature. And I thought, boy, that would be great. And I had spent the previous three summers working at Camp Penal, and I was a little tired of it. And Gordon Whitelock had always warned me, said, teachers do think they can teach and then counsel at camp all summer. And after you've been with kids all year, you don't want to counsel in the summer. And I knew I was burned out. And... Um, 
I just really didn't want to do that. And I thought, well, I'm going to start seminary next year. It'd be great to go on this tour and go to Europe. So I signed up, and I signed. I was the first one to sign up. Nobody else signed up. And the deadline was something like May the 20th. Not only did nobody sign up, but Gordon couldn't find anybody to run the trip camps. That really made me feel bad because he was one of the greatest influences in my life, led my mother to the Lord, and just uh, just an unbelievable Christian leader. And so it got to where I was within two days of the deadline, and I was I just felt horrible. And I think that's just the convicting work of the God, the Holy Spirit. I felt horrible for other reasons too, but I felt horrible for that. And I said, okay, nobody else is signing up. What's the chances you're going to get 15 people signed up in the next 48 hours? I just called the professor up and said, look, nobody else is probably going to sign up. I've got other things I can do. I'm going to go ahead and just back out. And he told me about a year later, in the next 48 hours, 20 people signed up. I felt like Jonah. And then I had a great summer doing what I was supposed to be doing that summer. See, that's a, God had a specific geographical will for my life and a specific thing for me to do. So that's um, sometimes God has a specific geographical will. Sometimes he doesn't. I think God had a specific geographical will for me to be in Ukraine Back in February, I couldn't figure out why, but the more I, tr- I, I tried everything to not go, and I couldn't make that decision. And it, it's not mystical; it just it it just did it just wasn't right. I mean, I had a commitment. I made it, been doing this forever. Searched, talked to people over there, people here. I talked to one guy who's the head of a major um, think tank in Washington, D.C., foreign affairs. I talked to him the third week of January, and he said, if he doesn't go by the 14th of February, he's not. Uh, or, when was I leaving? I was leaving on the 7th. If he doesn't attack by the 7th, don't worry about it. He's not going to attack. I mean, I just I talked to people who seem to be some of the most knowledgeable so I made the decision, and I went. And then immediately, as you know, the doors closed, canceled flights. I think God had me there for one reason, a lot of reasons. God's a multitasker. But one one was clearly that Jim and Phyllis were not going to come out. They had made that decision. And that um, when I got there and finally got to their house, where the three of us were together, all the dominoes fell into place. And it was clear that uh, Jim had no clue how he would have or could have gotten out if he had changed his mind until all of a sudden the Lord opened doors and avenues of exit that I hadn't even thought of. So that, I think, you know, there are times when God has that kind of specific geographical will for you. And the last one is wrong. God always has a specific will for every decision. So here you have two universal terms, always and every. You know that's a false statement. Uh, that, that when you get up in the morning, you have a lot of decisions you make every day. I mean, trivial decisions. But we all know that, that battles, major battles, have turned on a trivial decision. And a trivial decision has led to a defeat or a win in a battle and which has led to a defeat or a win in a war. History turns on trivial decisions, so they're not always as... Now, some decisions are always trivial, whether you're going to put your right shoe on first or your left shoe on first. may always be a trivial decision, but sometimes it might not be. I don't know. I don't, I have, I'm not going to worry about an illustration for that. So... Uh, we understand that within God's plan, there is flexibility. So we have to clarify what we mean when we use these terms, will of God. And so it describes there's three basic ways that it is used uh, theologically. First of all, the term will of God describes his sovereign will with regard to his creation. It is his creation. 
It's not our creation. It's not man's creation. But see, what's happened philosophically is that once man was able to come up with a a way of explaining existence without God and God got moved out of the scene, man became the ruler of the universe. And so it's up to man to control the environment and protect the environment and protect the earth and all kinds of other things. It's all up to us because if we don't do it, whatever it is, if we don't do it, then there won't be anything for the next generations. And you can bet on it that whatever they do to try to solve the problem is going to backfire and will make things worse for the coming generations. So what we have is um, the first in under God's sovereign will, the first term that is used is the decreed will of God. This is what God decrees in his sovereignty will happen. And we don't know what that is. It's what God has decreed. It's going to include what I'll say in a minute, his permissive will. Then you have the sovereign will of God, which is what God wills what happens. Each of these terms sort of emphasizes a slightly different way. You have the secret will of God. You don't know what God's will for your life is tonight. You could be in an automobile accident on the way home. You could be behind somebody who has an automobile accident, and you're the one who calls 911, and their lives saved. You can then witness to that person, and they will come to understand Jesus Christ died for them. We have no idea what's going to happen. Then you may just go home and go to bed, watch TV, and get a good night's sleep. We have no idea what God's decreed will is for tonight, for tomorrow, for next month, or the rest of the year. It's within the secret counsels of God. And that includes what is called the permissive will of God. God permits Satan to have a measure of freedom under God's authority, of course. God permits evil to rule for a time. God permits horrible people to do horrible things. He permits wars. He permits famines because he is allowing the natural normative consequences of sin to work themselves out in the affairs of man. If God intervened, he restrains to some degree, but if God intervened and stopped it, there would be no more volition, no more free will. Human beings would be locked into obedience to God. And so in giving mankind freedom of choice within parameters, with giving them that volitional responsibility, God allows failure. To the degree that he allows failure, to the opposite degree he allows success. And that works out in economics as well. A government that controls and tries to limit uh, failure is also limiting success until everybody has the same thing and you end up impoverished because that's always what happens under a socialist scheme where you're trying to guarantee equal results. You can either have equal opportunity or equal results. You cannot have both. So God's sovereign will includes allowing and permitting sin, rebellion, and everything that comes uh, comes on that that comes or flows out from that. But we only know it after the fact. We don't know what God's will is, his sovereign will is in the future. So we can't ask the question, "What is God's sovereign will for my life?" Because that's unknowable. The second category is God's moral will. Sometimes this is called his revealed will. For example, the Ten Commandments are an instance of God's moral will. Ten commands, prohibitions, as well as positive things. God's moral will is his revealed will. He tells us what we can do and what we should not do. And this is also called his desired will or his desiderative will. There's a good big word for you. 
Simply, it's God's moral will, what he has revealed. The Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, known as the law or the instruction, express God's moral will for Israel. But the Torah was not given to Gentile nations. Now, God's moral will for Gentile nations was in many ways the same, but there were certain things in the law, which was Israel's national constitution, which were mandated or prohibited, which were okay for because they weren't really necessarily moral. For example, you couldn't eat certain kinds of of sea creatures. You couldn't eat shrimp. You couldn't eat catfish. You couldn't eat lobster. You couldn't eat crabs. A lot of other things you couldn't eat as a Jew. But it's fine if you were a Gentile. And thank God we're in the church age because we all love those things. But the reason was God had them as object lessons because the animals that I just mentioned fed off of dead things. So they're associated with death. And death was the result of sin. So God's teaching certain things through those and only to Israel. And then God expressed his specific geographical will or specific operational will through special revelation. That's the only way you could know what God's will was for your life personally was, and it was individual, but these were exceptions. This wasn't for everybody. Genesis 12.1, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Well, here's the question. Did Abraham say, do you really want me to leave? Let, let me let me put out the fleece. Gideon's going to do that a few thousand a few, about a thousand years from now. So maybe maybe I'll do that seven hundred years. So uh, no, you, it's very clear. God personally revealed it. It's special revelation. Then you look at Exodus three ten. God appears to Moses and He says, "Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." See, Abram did exactly what God said almost. He didn't leave all of his family. He took his nephew Lot with him, which caused some problems later on. But he didn't try to get out of it. Uh, Moses tried to get out of it. He said, wait, 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 wait. I'm not the greatest speaker in the world. I have this speech impediment. Find somebody else. God said, okay, well, I can solve that problem. Aaron will be your uh, spokesperson, and you'll keep your mouth shut. Joshua 1-2, God speaks to Joshua. Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go across this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. So what was Joshua supposed to do? Get, have everybody get up, gather their belongings, and we're going to you know, walk across the Jordan River. God went on to say, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you as I said to Moses. So God has specific revealed will, but he doesn't address every believer, even in the Old Testament, with this kind of specificity. But it is for many, and there was a time of special uh, special revelation. Now, we've seen this in Judges. Judges 6.14, Then the Lord turned to him, that is to Gideon, and said, Go in this might of yours. This might, he's really referring to God's power. And you shall deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. I have sent you. So he said to him, that is, Gideon said to God, Oh, my Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my family. He's already trying to get out of it. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianite army as one man. So it's really clear what God wanted Gideon to do, and it was really clear Gideon tried to avoid it. Now, under see, we have God's specific will, his functional will, his operational or geographical will. is always expressed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament through special revelation of a prophet, of an angel, or the angel of the Lord, an angel, or God. Special revelation, or through his behind-the-scenes orchestration of events. And what we see is we really can't miss the geographical will of God. We can't go 
one way when God wants us to go something else, he will make us miserable. He will shut it down. And many, he's got a lot of tools in his toolbox. Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. So what's, what's Jonah supposed to do? Pack his bags and head east. What did he do? He packed his bags and ran down to the harbor, which was west, and caught a ship going west as soon as he could. And where did he end up? He ended up in Nineveh. You can't escape the geographical will of God. You have other specifics given, like in Ezekiel 4, 1 through 4, where God gives these strange commands to Ezekiel. He says, You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city. So he's taking a clay tablet and he's drawing out the outline of the city of Jerusalem. He's going to do a little object lesson. And God says, I've underlined all the commands. Lay siege against it. Build a siege wall against it. He, so he's, he, he's playing with models here. He's building a little model of Jerusalem. Heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it. Place battering ramps. All this pictures the fact that Jerusalem is going to come under a siege. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be assigned to the house of Israel. Lie also on your left side. Notice, not your right side. So God has all these specifics, but they're only for Ezekiel. They're not for anybody else. Lie on your left side. Lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it according to the number of the days that you lie on it. You shall bear their iniquity. Acts 10. This is when uh, Peter is having... Uh, the vision of the tablecloth that comes down with all all the food on it, and God is preparing him for taking the gospel to the Gentile home of Cornelius. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly, that is Peter, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, excuse me, this is Cornelius' vision. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, this is the angel. So, that, so when he, that is Cornelius, observed him, that is the angel of the Lord, Cornelius was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. So this is you know, God's express, direct, special revelation to Cornelius. And then a fourth category is God's overriding will. We make decisions contrary to God's specific geographical or operational will, and he prevents us from accomplishing those decisions. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You don't have to guess. You say, oh, Lord, I, 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 I thought you said to go left, and I went left, but look, there's a roadblock, and now I'm back the other way. I guess that's the way you wanted me to go to begin with. So we have God's sovereign will, which is unknown. That's the circle. And then God's moral or revealed will which is known, that's the other circle, and sometimes there's an overlap. That's the area of the where it's shaded in red. So that's the area God's more revealed will is where we live when we're in obedience. But sometimes we're living out here. It's still God's permissive will for us to live in carnality, but that's not the area where we're being, we're being blessed because we're out of fellowship. So then there's also in this area, this is God's revealed will, but he doesn't want us to do that in our life. We may think, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give money to West Houston Bible Church. I'm going to give money to Jim Myers Ministries. I'm going to do all these things. And God's saying, you're never going to win anything because I don't want you to do that. 
because that is not my uh, that, that's not my sovereign will. But you desire to do something that is God's revealed will to be a generous giver. But God's saying, I'm not going to allow you to do that. I think that God's going to honor our desires like that, that he's not going to allow us to fulfill when we're at the judgment seat of Christ. So in this chart, yeah, I got my circles and animation got out of order. We have uh, the circle is the boundaries that define the mandates and imperative prohibitions in Scripture. You can think of this as the as the right circle in my left circle, right circle diagram, that this defines the Christian life. And when we're not living inside that circle, we are out of fellowship. We're walking in darkness. We're living on the basis of the flesh. We're outside of God's moral revealed will. And so where God wants us is living inside of his moral and revealed will. So all of that just defines terms. That's point number one. And next time we'll come back and look at key verses that support God's, God's sovereign will. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these uh, very important concepts of understanding what you want us to do, how you want us to think, how you want us to live, and how you want us to make decisions in life in a way that brings glory to you. And the contrast is it's not about our glory but your glory. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to humble ourselves under your authority and be casting our cares upon you because we know you care for us. In Christ's name, amen.